Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. I should mention, I forgot to mention, the podcasts, they're actually available on iTunes now. So if you know somebody that, if you're one of the people that approached me and said, hey, you know, get this going, now they're out there. So if you go to iTunes, you can actually type in CJC Weekly Bible Study, and they'll come up, the first three of them. So there's going to be more coming as I figure out better and better how to work the thing. And then also, forgot to mention as well, if, if you want to see what I look like wearing a kippah or a yarmulke, <laughs> that's coming up a week from this Saturday at Esther's Church. I didn't know I was even allowed to wear one of those. So that I went one day, and uh, Esther walked by me and went, <laughs> right on my head. And I'm like, but I'm not Jewish. I cannot even wear this. And turns out I can. Turns out you don't have to be Jewish to wear one. So That's the 12th, right? So that's the 12th over in Guardian. So it's going to be... Interesting, yeah, awkward. Yeah, we're going to have a little Hanukkah, just kind of get together afterwards, just right there. Special food. And Are you going to be able to videotape him? Yeah. We can record him. You don't have videotape. What's that? What's the occasion? Uh, somehow she wrote me into doing a Hanukkah message. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, he, no, 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 no. He said, I volunteer to help. <laughs> that's, I volunteer that's, that's to help. And I said, okay, mm-hmm. when would you like to come and speak? <laughs> and he said, I can't do it in November. I'm really full. That's true. That was right. And he goes, but I can in December. That's awesome. Jeff. I said, well, do you want to do it the 5th or the 12th? And he's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I said, well, the 12th is, you know, that's during the period of Hanukkah. But I don't know anything about Hanukkah. Everybody else knows stuff about Hanukkah, but I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. Sure you do, Jeff. And I said, but you like to research. I've been doing a lot of reading. <laughs> just, that's what we're at. We want him just to come and just teach. Come teach. So I still have more questions I'll need to ask you later, like how long or how short. Or... What, your message? Yeah. Longer than 15 minutes. Okay. Shorter than two hours. Oh, well, that's a big span. I think I can hit inside somewhere in there. <laughs> um, service starts at 1030 a.m. Same place where you were on uh-huh. Friday. So, I'm I'm actually looking forward to it. It's going to be wonderful. And, and the synagogue is okay with uh, not like a, yes. a Christian coming in and teaching. Yes. That's amazing. Because, ah. Yes. In fact, one Messianic congregation had a Gentile leader for a long, 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 long time. You know, and and the organization that we yeah. belong to, they have no problem with a woman leading. They have no problem with a Gentile leading or a Jew leading. Did you almost say Goel or no? no? Okay. No, or a Jew leading. I, okay. I mean, you know. All right. There are pastors who are Jews in yeah. churches. Yeah. Why shouldn't there be? Yeah. So it's good. It's good to yes, see the family, mm-hmm. you know, that the family mm-hmm. is broader than anything. You think about the everything. book of Acts. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, I mean, I Gentiles. Great. Mm-hmm. Up to I think it's great. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So it should be interesting. It should be good. All right, let's move on to today's material. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Last week, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 4. And you'll remember that passage, kind of a weird passage, one of the most difficult passages in the book of Genesis. Verses 1 through 4, talking about things like the sons of God, you know, the uh, daughters of men uh, were beautiful and took wives from whomever they wanted, that kind of stuff. And if you notice, if you look at the language there, look at verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2. Look at some of these key words, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Saw, beautiful, and took. Have you seen that pattern anywhere else that we've seen in Genesis so, Genesis so far? Somebody yeah. that saw something, <laughs> it was appealing to their eye, and they took. What, what is that conjure? Yeah. Or members of? Yeah, it's the fruit, right? It was Eve. She saw the trees that was good for fruit. She considered, hmm, that's attractive, and she took. So yeah, same kind of pattern that we see going on here. Just kind of interesting to notice that. Like a temptation pattern. Yeah, kind of a temptation pattern. It it leads to nothing but bad, right? (laughs) When you see that kind of stuff happening. Moving on now, we're obviously looking at verses 5 and following. 5 through 13 is what I've got on the board. That might be a little ambitious for one study for today. We'll see how we do. It's up to God, right? But here's, notice how this verse starts. Verse 5, then the Lord saw. (laughs) It sounds kind of like it's starting off similarly, right? (laughs) If you remember... Let's, let's look at all, or let's consider all the times so far that somebody saw something, right? Think back to the sixth day of creation, when God saw, right? When God saw, and what did he, he declare very good, right? He saw his creation, he declared very good. And then later on, we find the woman in the garden, she saw the fruit, and it was attractive, and as we mentioned, she took from it. And then we saw the sons of God saw the women. So it's interesting that God saw his creation, made a declaration about its goodness. And then woman, part of creation, saw something uh, like a subcategory of the creation, saw the fruit, right? Saw the tree. And then the next thing that's looked at is the woman. All right. And then the next person that does the looking again is, is now God. So now it's kind of come full circle. God saw, and what does he see? Something's happened since the sixth day of creation. What does it say there in verse five? What did God see? Wickedness of man was great. Yeah. It's gone downhill. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, it's interesting as we go through this passage right here, one of the things that we're going to notice is that in the passage we're looking at in these verses 5 through 13, a lot of times you might hear somebody say, oh, it's never too late. That's not the case here. (laughs) We're going to find out from this passage, there comes a point where it's too late. And God, what he sees, they're beyond hope. In a sense, it's too late. God has already made up his mind. There's only one remedy for this, and it's going to be basically the flood. We're going to end up getting into the flood narrative very soon. All right? So God sees the wickedness. He sees the sins of the world. You know, one of the things that God had issue with in with mankind was get out there, spread out. You know, be fruitful and multiply. Well, they've spread out and they haven't behaved in a manner that would be glorifying of God, right? If you remember one of the things that we noticed from that last study was that it seems that the sons of God were ap- operating outside the parameters that God had given them. And that was sin. 
And one of the applications we could take from that is when we operate outside the parameters God gives us, that's sin. And so what does that call upon us? It calls for obedience, right? Anytime we disobey God, we're acting outside the parameters that God would give us. And when we're acting outside the parameters of what God would give us, it leads to wickedness, all right? So here we're finding that it's led to wickedness. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That word for intent, or at least in the New King James, it says intent. It it carries with it the idea of imagination or desire. It also carries with it the idea of forming something, all right, forming something. This word is uh, as God was like the potter in the creation account, all right? So now man is kind of the potter of his own desires, his own intents, all right? The thoughts of his heart. The heart was considered in Jewish thought the center or the focal point of all of of a, of a person's being, all right? The essence of their desires, their aspirations, their thinkings, their feelings, their will, all right? The heart was considered the focal point or the center of that. So here we have that the Lord notices that their heart, it's, it's all about wickedness. The wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice that last word as well, continually. This isn't, this isn't a seasonal lapse, it's not like this is like man has elected a bad president and they have all gone astray and then they come back when somebody else gets elected that's a better president you know anything like that no this is this is a continual pattern this is something that has become uh the way that they operate verse six somebody mind reading verse six and the lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and his and he was grieved in his heart the lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart you know when we look at that verse 5 and we talk about the wickedness and we consider that that makes God sorry, you know that the New Testament carries with it the concept of grieving the Holy Spirit. That we actually can grieve the Holy Spirit much like mankind and mankind's choices there ended up causing God to grieve in this Old Testament passage. Kind of the same concept expressed in different words. In Jeremiah 17.9, It says the heart is desperately wicked. Why do I bring that passage up? Because of this. Turn to Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. Genesis 8, 21. Somebody mind reading this. And the Lord was pleased with the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the earth, destroying all living things, even though people's thoughts and actions are bent toward evil from childhood. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. This passage that's here in 8, 21 in relationship to the timing of the flood, when does this passage, when is, when is this? Is this before the flood or after? after? It's after the flood. Before the flood, we have chapter 6, verse 5, where God sees the wickedness of man that's great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The flood account happens in between these two passages. And then in verse 21, we find that God says that after the flood... Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. It sounds like the human condition isn't changed by the flood. Right? And then Jeremiah, like that passage I was just referring to, Jeremiah 17, 9, describes our hearts as being desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. And then we find Paul uses, uh, it says in Romans three twenty three that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It sounds like the human condition has remained despicable that we remain sinful creatures. That wasn't remedied by the flood. That makes God's love for us all the more 
glowing in the sense. I mean, it's it's that much more obvious when we read something like Romans 5, 8, where it says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because sinners before the flood, sinners after the flood, sinners during the time of the prophets, sinners during the time of Paul, sinners today. All of us, what does it tell us? We need a savior. It tells us we are falling far short of the glory of God. And without a remedy provided in a divine realm, there's no hope for us. So when Christ in, in his divinity comes and dies for us, taking upon himself humanity, he dies on the cross, he rises from the dead. What does that do for us? It provides for us a righteousness we can't have on our own. Because if you measure ourselves, we're wicked. We're wicked. We need a righteousness imputed to us, which is brought about by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So the flood doesn't end up changing the condition of man's heart. So this condition that we're reading about here in chapter 6, verse 5, where we're wicked, all right, and that our every intent of our thoughts of our heart was only evil continually, that doesn't end up changing. What ends up changing, though, is God is able to wipe the slate clean and kind of start over again with one family, eight people, Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord being grieved by our own choices. That word there that's translated as sorry in verse 6, somebody else have a different translation that has a different word? Regretted. Regretted. Okay, so that's ESV, I think? Yes. Regretted. Sorry. Does anybody else have another one? Grieved. Grieved. Is that the word that comes later? Because grieved should be in most of these. It says the Lord was grieved. Oh, it does have grieved there. Okay. He had made man on the earth. Grieved. Anybody have an ASV or a King James Version? If you read ESV or King James Version, it'll even say repented. They're all, whoa, that's confusing. How is it that God needs to repent? There's a difference in the way that this word is used to apply to us and the way that it's used to apply to God. In, in this idea, this word that's used uh, to describe or that's been translated into these four and, and possibly other uh, different wordings being chosen, repent is something that man does after an act, okay? Repent is something that typically you'll see man does after they've committed an act for which they are trying to take back, okay? Typically what you'll see in the Old Testament is this idea, when God repents, he's repenting of something yet future. Man repents of the past. God repents of something yet future, okay? So typically what you're going to see is God says, I had declared disaster for you, but because you made choices, you humbled yourself, you began to follow me, I have chosen to forego the path I was going to go down with you in judgment and bestow blessings upon you. That's typically how you'll see it. But there's two times in your Old Testament where God is actually repenting of something past. This is one of the two. The only other passage that I've run across is 1 Samuel 15.11. In 1 Samuel 15.11, it's where God says... I'm sorry that I made Saul king. I regret that I made Saul king. Okay? And you're kind of like, that's weird. Those are the only two places. Yeah, those are the only two places where God is repenting of something past. That's usually man's realm where he, oh, I blew it again. You repent and it's something that happened in the past. God says, I'm going to forego what I'm going to do in the future. Except for here and in that place with Saul. Where he says, I regret, I regret what has occurred here. God is not regretting that he's made man. He's not repenting that he has created mankind. What he is grieved by and sorry by is the choices man has made that have led 
himself, mankind, into the position he's come to. All right? So he says, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and that he was grieved in his heart. He's not sorry that he made them in the sense that he'd made a mistake in his creation. He's sorry that he made them that they ended up by their own free will choosing to come to the place where they came to. All right. So the idea that we could cause the holy creator of the universe to grieve should be, in a sense, a little bit humbling, if nothing else, where it says, how could he care so much about me be even be grieved by my choices i mean as as we find elsewhere in our old testament what am i i'm a, I'm a worm how, how could a worm affect <laughs> the decisions of the holy creator right yet there's something about god who takes a personal interest in us that causes him to be grieved by our choices but at the same time he takes a personal interest in this one individual of noah and noah ends up finding favor Noah ends up finding favor. The word that's translated sorry or regretted or repented, I think another one even says relented, all right? That word, it doesn't have one English equivalent for it, okay? It can be translated any number of ways. Six of them are primary ways that it can be translated. And you find when you look at those six ways that some of them sound like they're opposed to one another. For example, one meaning could be to suffer emotional pain. Yet in other places, it could be translated to be comforted. Those sound like polar opposites. You look at another place to retract punishment or in another place to retract blessing. Those sound like they're, they're different, uh, different one from another. Here's one thing about it. This word, the Hebrew word that's translated this way, carries with it the idea of emotion right? plus change of direction. All right? Emotion plus change of a direction. So sorry carries with it in English. Most of these English words are going to emphasize one or the other without being able to emphasize both, because we don't have an English equivalent for that word. All right? So to be sorry is an emotional thing. All right? To regret is an emotional thing. To repent is a direction thing. To relent is a direction thing. Grieve carries more with it the emotion thing. But the Hebrew word carries both. All right? So this word that's translated in this place for any one of these carries with it the idea that it's emotion component to it plus a change of direction component to it. This is going to make more sense later. All right? I'm just kind of laying the groundwork right now. All right, moving on from there. And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So here's one of the mentions about heart right here. What is it that we find about man's heart in this passage? Yeah, there's wickedness in man's heart. What is in God's heart? Pain because of the wickedness. Pain in God's heart because of the wickedness in man's heart. So God's heart is feeling pain. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth... By the way, that word earth there, this isn't the first time in this passage that earth has appeared. If you look at verses 5 through 13, the word earth, that word that's translated earth, it appears eight times. Does this sound like a local problem? No. It sounds like it's a global problem, right? It sounds like it's to the extent of humanity, right? And I would give you that. I would say, yes, I agree with that. I agree that this is not a localized problem. This is a sin problem. It's systemic. It's through the entire human race. It's a global problem. The reason I bring that up now is because when the flood comes, there are people that would propose to you it was a local flood. But a local flood doesn't take care of a global problem, okay? <laughs> a global problem is addressed by a global judgment, therefore necessitating a global flood. All right, just letting you know that in advance as well. Also, if you notice, animals are involved in this. Did you notice that? 
-hmm. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made that. We don't know if the animals contributed to the wickedness or they were victims, innocent victims of this. But if you think about this, you know that there are some animals, Dave just got a cat, all right? And so he's got this experience of going to the pet store. And what a nice sanitary uh, way to get a pet. You know, if you were to get a pet from the pound, it might be a little dicier because they may not be as um, cultured, if you will, as the pet you're going to get from the pet store. Much more so if you were to pull a cat out of a field, right? If you were to trap a feral cat. You recognize that the feral cat is going to behave in a way that's probably a little bit different than the pet smart pet, right? With the pound, the one from the pound being in the middle or somewhere in between, all right? We've had the feral cats where we've tried to take them in and try to love them and take care of them and whatnot. Sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't, all right? Uh, we've also had cats that I'm sure were abused, all right? On occasion, we took this one cat in, and I tell you what, I think that cat was abused because that cat never trusted us, all right? And we actually, on vacation, one of the things that we like to do, we don't do so much at home, but on vacation, I love to watch TV. Uh, at, at home, we don't have cable, so we don't get to see all these channels. And so we're on vacation, we're watching TV, and there's a show that was on called uh, My Cat from Hell. All right? Mm -hmm. And it's this guy, he looks like he's a rock star or something, and he goes to people's houses, and he, like, uh, tries to take their cat that's just like this demon cat and make him into, like, a nice cat, little angel cat. All right? And one of the things that uh, one of the shows we were watching, we didn't even get to finish this episode. He ends up talking to the owners. Hey, what, you know, tell me about your experience with the cat, blah, blah, blah. And so anyway, they're relating this story. Well, the guy at the house is like, yeah, you know, the cat makes me mad. You know, one day it ran into the bedroom, crew up, crawled up inside the bed, and like lifted up the bed. And the guy's like, oh, whoa, 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 what, what? And he like pulls him aside and takes him in the kitchen. He's like, I got to know, did you hit the cat? You know, because as the episode was going, they couldn't explain why. You know, Mama comes over, oh, you sweetie, and the little cat plays with Mama. And then Dad comes over and it's like, ah, and scratches him all up, and he's all bleeding and everything. Mm. So when the guy pulls him aside, he's like, I think you hit the cat. You're not, you're not being straight with me. I think you hit the cat, right? So if you abuse an animal, is that going to change the way it behaves towards humans? Yeah, it is. Perhaps in this situation, this, this human race being characterized by violence, perhaps the violence extends even to animals, are animals going to behave different when they're treated with violence by humans? I'm going to guess so. Do they react violently sometimes? Yeah, perhaps they do. Perhaps God is seeing not just humankind, but the animals, the animal kingdom, impacted by the wickedness of man, such that he's got to say, i got to start over. i got to start over not just with man, but i got to start over with the animals too, because they've been defiled, they've been contaminated by the wickedness that's prevalent in mankind. All right, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. When you took us over to 1 Samuel 15, he said one of the things Saul didn't do was to wipe everything out. He says, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. And then when Samuel talks to Saul, he says, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of the cattle that I hear? They didn't. And that they was didn't. part of the disobedience and not killing the animals too, which is interesting. I was wondering why they would, he would order that the animals get killed too. So even in this judgment, where Noah is about to experience the flood situation, yeah, we find the animals. We've got a select few, a remnant that's saved in the ark, just as we had a remnant of the people saved in the ark. Interesting. More study. More study involved. Well, you know, you're supposed to give your animals a Shabbat rest. Oh, like okay. You, you give yourself a Shabbat rest. So maybe it has to do with man having dominion. Anything he has dominion over is either going to be blessed because of him or cursed because of him. And dominion in the sense of stewardship right. as opposed to domineering. Good point. 
All right, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's uh, one of the word plays right here that's going on between Noah and grace. In, in Hebrew, originally, you probably heard us talk before, there weren't vowels. They were put in after, after this was written. So Noah, you ended up having as no, NH, all right? And uh, the word that I have translated as grace, some of them will say favor, is HN. There's a, there's a word play going on here, all right? Or in this case, I guess you could say a letter play, all right? So Noah is related to, in a, a word play sense, to this word for grace, all right? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, or some of your translations, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. By the way, what, what is, do you recognize that from anywhere? That word genealogy in the New King James, some of them will say this is the account, or this is the history, the generations. Do you recognize this word, or do you recognize this pattern that you've seen before? Remember how we talked about Ron saying, yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that somewhere. Remember how we talked about before that the book of Genesis is broken up into segments that were kind of sewn together. And this is where the seam is, where it's sewn together. All right? This word for generations or account or history or, or descendants, the word is toledoth in, in the Hebrew. And this is where we're transitioning now from one section into another. So what we've seen so far, we saw the account of the heavens and the earth. And then we saw the account of Adam. And so now we're up to the account of Noah. So we're kind of in the third section of the book. All right, the account of Noah. We're going to see after that in chapter 10, we're going to see the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. So it's focusing down now onto particular people. And then in chapter 11, the account of Shem, so one son of Noah, and then get more particular down to Terah in chapter 11, verse 27, then Ishmael, then Isaac, then Esau, then Jacob. So we're finding that the book is sewn together and each of these are different parts. And it kind of gives us a little transition period where it says you're now entering a new section. You're now entering the next part of the book. Okay, so now we're entering the part about Noah. In chapters 1 through 11, the account of Noah is the big one. It's where the most emphasis is placed. All right, so this account of Noah is the bigger account of the different sections between chapters 1 through 11. The reason 1 through 11, because chapter 12 focuses on one person. So this is kind of humankind narrowing down to one person. Chapter 12 starts... And uh, that's where we are introduced at the very end of chapter 11 and in force in chapter 12 with Abraham and going from there, the particular family that comes from Abraham. All right? So this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. A just man, perfect in his generations. What are some of the other translations say out there? Righteous man, blameless. Righteous man, blameless. Any others? No, those are the those are the primary ones. In fact, righteous and blameless gets more play in more translations than than the one we're using here, the New King James. A just man, perfect in his generations, or a righteous man, blameless in his generations. All right, blameless has the idea of the undefiled. All right, so whereas the world, the humankind, if you will, the human race has become defiled by the bad choices they've been making, Noah has, by his good choices, ended up being undefiled by that. Not going with the flow, okay? Do you suppose he was a popular guy? Probably not, because he doesn't go with the flow. Oh, that strange guy over there, Noah. Oh, things just got stranger. He's about to build a boat. You know? <laughs> I mean, and it hasn't rained yet. No, we don't know for sure if it hadn't rained by that time or not. We'll talk about that more as we get there. All right? So undefiled, blameless, wholesome. He's got his integrity where everybody else has decided apparently to give up their integrity. All right? And then this, this idea of just or righteous, Okay, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. 
What is chapter 11? Anybody recognize this chapter? The Hall of Faith. Person after person after person used as examples to show what it looks like to be a person of faith. This particular verse, verse 8, talking about Noah. What does it say there about Noah and specifically about his righteousness? Somebody want to read it? By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. All right, so what does it say there about his righteousness? Heir of righteousness, and then what's the rest of the phrase there? It comes by faith. It comes by faith, or according to his faith. So there's some sort of relationship that we find between Noah's righteousness and this idea of faith. Okay? That the righteousness that is being described or attributed to Noah is a righteousness that comes by faith. All right? So we're going to put right here righteousness from faith. All right, going way back, going to Romans. We're not going to turn to Romans, but I mean, going back to the study of Romans that we did. Do you remember what we talked about faith? Do you remember a simple definition that we gave of faith? This is going a long way back, right? This is probably a couple years ago, if I remember right. Faith is trust plus belief, all right? Or to say it another way, it's belief plus action, all right? If you have belief in God, that's not enough. All right? That's not faith. It's one thing to believe only, but the demons believe. So it's not enough for saving faith to just believe. There has to be attendance, some sort of action. Okay? When we talked about repent, when God says, I repent of what I've done here, the idea that it carries with it, do you remember what that was? That repent that was over there was something, was action. What was it? It was emotion. So, faith is belief plus action. Repent is emotion plus action. It's not enough. Just as belief is not enough to be faith without action, just belief alone isn't enough to be faith, so emotion is not enough to be repentance. It's not enough to say, God, I'm really feeling bad about that. No, it's about action as well. What is the action in each of these? Here's what the action is. This action in this one is move away from sin. It, this is for our application, for us. All right? In God's situation, it's obviously different. God doesn't need to move away from sin. All right? In this one, when it comes to faith, faith is belief plus action. What is, what is the action there? It's move toward God. All right, move toward God. Are we already out of time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just leave it. Yeah. All right, so faith is belief plus action, or faith is belief plus moving toward God. And repentance is emotion plus moving away from sin. We need both of these. We should be showing both of these, evidencing both of these as a Christian, as, as somebody that's saved. All right? I guess we'll make that where we wrap up. <laughs> we'll get to the rest when we come to Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that you would go with us, Lord. Help us, God. Help us to sort through all of this. Help us to become more like you as time goes on. Lord, the big idea that 
you've saved us, and that imputed righteousness is what sees our justification. That's what makes it so that we can go to heaven. But adding to justification, we have sanctification, where the day we're born again starts a process, where we're made more and more like you, and that's a personal righteousness that comes through faith, and that being belief plus action. Help us to exhibit action in our life. Help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. God, we pray that you would find in us fertile soil, that your word would take root in us and sprout and grow to give a crop that's just amazing. We pray, Lord, that you would do this for your glory, for the sake of your name. And we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to participate in this life with you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.